Hello. <laughs> Good morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Hey, good morning again, everyone. Uh, is, is Presley said uh, Branda's here. Is Branda here? Miranda? Is she here? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... I just want to say this, two, two, two things in the way of, this is bonus pastoring you're going to get here. Um, one is we have a lot of babies at Grace Church, which is awesome, right? Uh, but it sort of kind of gets washed away. And a, a number of families have a number of babies, and so that further kind of washes it away. And this is their sixth baby girl, which sort of further washes it away. And I, and I just want to take a second and thank God for his kindness to us in this way and for you guys being here and sharing life and babies and all that with us and that, that they're just we love you guys we love that you share your families with us that together we bring the gospel to bear on one another and baby Mari many many years we we long to pray for her and see her trust in Jesus and bless us with her life and presence so we're glad you're here thank you that's awesome Amen. Uh, and, and here's the second bonus pastor deal you get. Uh, I think this is key. And um, uh, Ethan and I were talking about this a little bit in the prayer room. Okay, so I need you to think of a three-legged stool. We tend to think of maybe the preaching or Berea as sort of truth time, and then kind of the music is sort of the affection uh, emotion time, and then sort of the things we do, maybe together for good, or uh, or ser- the service projects we're gonna go, we're gonna go sing and things like that as the obedience time. <clears throat> but here's what I want us all to continue to fight to understand and live out: that true worship, the kind of worship that pleases God, always has all three legs of that stool. What I mean by that is, if you find your affections stirred but you can't point to a particular truth that's stirring them, there's something funny. And if you have something that's really true, like that hopefully you're gonna hopefully your affections were stirred in the songs, but if you if they weren't if that wasn't driven by a, a, a particular truth of who God is and what Christ has done for us, you gotta rethink that. I'm about to preach what I hope is true from God's word, but if it doesn't stir your affections that's a that's another issue. You gotta you gotta fight for that and against that tendency for it not to do that. And then if you have true truth and godly affections that don't lead to action, whether it's singing or obedience or service or whatever it is, you need all three. And so fight to have all three. Make sure they stay connected. There should always be a link to hearing something that's true, having your heart stirred and your life propelled into obedience. So there you go. That's end of the bonus pastoring. Here's the actual pastoring. 
In the way of a reminder, during Advent, we're working through this this passage here, slowly, carefully, a few verses at a time. Last week, if you were here, you remember, and if you weren't, bring you up to speed. We looked at John 3.16, a very Christmassy passage, and uh, the main thrust was the love of God is shown through Christmas. This week, this morning, right now, 17 and 18, there is no condemnation through Christmas. And then next Sunday on the 18th, we'll look through, we'll look at 19 to 21, the light of the world has come through Christmas. I think it's interesting that each of these passages speaks explicitly of the incarnation of Jesus. Did you notice this? That each one, each 16 has its own, 17 and 18 has its own, and then 19 through 21 has its own. It uses three different words. Uh, I don't know if you saw that or not, but in 16 it says that God gave his son. Christmas is the giving of Jesus. Verse 17 says that God sent his son. Christmas is the sending of Jesus. And verse 19 says that Jesus came into the world. Christmas is the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel. Well, the main thing for us to see is that each of these descriptions of the incarnation are a description, ultimately, of the intentional work of God. As we lean into our text this morning, and I encourage you to do that, lean into it. Therefore, let's not forget that Christmas was always God's plan to rescue the world from sin. Let's not miss the glory of the incarnation as the fulfillment of God's promises over thousands of years of biblical history, and in a very real sense, a promise that was eternal. Read Ephesians 1.4 if you want to know what I mean by that. Grace, let's not overlook the tremendous help that John 3.16-21 is for understanding what it means that the Son of God took on flesh, why he did so, and what that has to do with us in December 25th. In other words, these few verses are a tremendous help for us to celebrate Christmas with the type of fullness that it deserves. All right, well, what is true of this whole passage, 16 to 21, is also true for the two verses we're going to focus on this morning. Very simple, basic argument that John gives us in these two verses. Three parts. First, God did not make Christmas to condemn the world. It's not why it exists. Second, God made Christmas to save the world. That is why it exists. And third, once again, the salvation... Salvation comes through believing in Christmas and all that it means and all that it led to. So in other words, the good news of this passage, the good news of Christmas, is that Jesus came to end condemnation, not to bring it, and that salvation comes through trusting in Jesus' performance, not ours. Do you want to truly honor God in the way you approach this Advent season and ultimately Christmas? Grace? The answer is yes. I know you do. And this passage is a gift of God to you. So let's, let's pray that he'd help us to see it as such and receive it as such. God, thank you, for, thank you for all of your word. Thank you for your spirit to help us understand, apply it to our hearts, even write it on our hearts to convict us of sin and transform us in the newness of life that is ours when we first believe. 
Thank you for all of your word. Thank you in particular for this passage this morning as it shows us something absolutely vital of the gospel and of Christmas and the significance of Jesus coming and the implicate and its implications and for us and for what it means to follow Jesus and to celebrate Christmas. God, let us let us be a people who are earnest to honor you in all that we do, everything. Whether we eat or drink or buy a present or hang a hang ornaments on a tree or give a gift or eat dinner with family and friends or come to a Christmas Eve worship service or a Christmas Day worship service, whatever we do, may we be earnest in our desire to do it for your glory. May we be a people of your word so that we know what that means and a people of truly involved in the church so that we can live it out with all the help you mean us to have and the encouragement and the correction and the rebuke. And with all of that, let us lean into this passage as it gives us a really crucial ingredient for God-honoring Christmas celebration. Let us, let us lean way into this. Give us ears to hear. Wake us up from our spiritual slumber. Wake us up from our laziness and our, our unintentionalness of just sort of coasting through life. Wake us up now and let this text be a means to that end. Spirit, help us. If, if you don't, we'll, we'll just it'll fly over us and around us and bounce off of us, and we will not be transformed. But with your help, we, we would, our minds will be renewed and our lives will be transformed. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, amen. So the basic idea of being condemned, as I'm sure you understand, is to be judged guilty. Have you ever been explicitly condemned for something? Think about that. Have you ever been explicitly condemned for something? In the most literal sense, it involved being found guilty in a court of law, condemned for tax fraud or assault or reckless driving or something like that, for instance. In a more common sense, a way that happens far more often, it happens every time someone decides that you wronged them. Condemned for talking trash or cheating in a game or lying about who broke the chair or not listening well or taking the last cookie from the church freezer this past week when I was looking forward to eating it. I have my suspicions, but I'm not going to call anyone out today. I mean, theoretically. Of course, whether formally or informally, we've all been condemned for something by someone. Try to remember the last time that happened to you. Draw draw to mind the last time you can remember being condemned by someone for something. And I wonder, how did you feel? How did that make you feel? Well, unless you were condemned by a non-believing God-hater for loving Jesus too much, I imagine it probably didn't feel very good. If you're wrongly condemned, it feels terrible. But even if you're rightly judged guilty... No one likes that. For those reasons, John's opening words in verse 17 probably sound like good news, right? For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus taught the same thing himself more than once. Passages like John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, he says. Again, that sounds like really good news, doesn't it? No one likes to be condemned, especially not unjustly, but but even justly, we don't we don't like that. And so, if there's anything worse than being con- 
condemned by your sister for being mean, which my sister seemed to do to me a lot growing up. It's being formally judged, condemned, found guilty for speeding. If there's anything worse than being condemned formally by a judge for something, it's most definitely being condemned by Jesus for anything. And so the fact that God didn't send Jesus to condemn us, it's got to be a positive thing, doesn't it? Is it that simple? Christmas is the good news, Grace. Jesus does not condemn the world. Is that is that what's going on here? Well, there are three main things to see here as we look carefully at this text, and all of which will help us to celebrate Christmas as we're meant to. The first is this. The first thing to see is that the the good news of the beginning of verse 17 isn't quite what it might seem like. God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. Get that, Grace. Please listen. I'm going to say it again. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came because the world was condemned. The title of the sermon is, what is it? There is no condemnation through Christmas, but rather Christmas is because there is already condemnation. Write that down. Write that down, Grace. I'm going to tell you more about what that means, but if you don't hear anything else, you have to hear this. Jesus... God didn't send Jesus into the world, John says, to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came because the world was condemned. Divine judgment had already taken place and the world was found guilty. John made that clear even in verse 18, which we'll come back to later. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. If that's not obvious to you already, let me make it obvious to you. That is a big deal. You can't truly celebrate Christmas. Think of all your Christmas celebrations, and I'm telling you right now, you can't truly celebrate Christmas if you don't understand its relationship to the condemnation of the world. Of course, this is the opposite of what most people participating in holiday celebrations believe. But let the word of God prove true and every man a liar. Christmas is about condemnation before it is ever about salvation. Christmas is about condemnation before it can ever be about celebration. So let me, let me say one more thing, and then we'll move on, and it gets worse. All right, and then it gets better. Uh, but but what, does this, what does this have to do? You've, if I took a poll right now, how many of you have ever read John's Gospel? I bet most of you would raise your hand. And so hopefully coming to mind is John 5 and John 9. And you're thinking, okay, well, what does that have to do then with with what Jesus said. And Jesus said in John 5, and the Father has given me authority to execute judgment because I'm the Son of Man. Well, wait a minute. To, to condemn. God did not send Jesus in the world to condemn the world. Well, what about John 9, 39? Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world. Well, how does it fit with those two things then? And, and there are others like it. If John 3 says that Jesus did not come to judge or condemn the world, how were then we to make sense of John 5 and John 9, which seem to say the opposite? I'll answer in more detail when we get to those passages, but I need to say this now. Jesus did not come into the world to bring condemnation, as we read in our passage this morning, but he did come to perfectly name the things the world stood condemned for. You with me on that? If you're not, I hope you will be soon. As we saw at the end of chapter 2, Jesus perfectly knows the hearts of all people. 
He was able to look into the hearts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Nicodemus, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the disciples, the Roman soldiers, you and me and everyone else, and know our every thought and intention. Jesus knows better than we do ourselves exactly what we stand condemned for. Does that make sense? He knows what we stand condemned for. And in that way, when he encountered individuals and groups and named their offenses, he wasn't condemning them, but naming the judgment or condemnation under which they already stood. You with me? So when it says that he came to judge the world, it means that he came to reveal the specifics of the condemnation that the world already was under. He didn't come into the world to bring condemnation, but he did come to make clear the nature of the condemnation. It is often believed that God, especially Old Testament God, is angry, vengeful, wrathful, cantankerous. That's a good word. While Jesus is kind and forgiving and loving, God condemns its thought and Jesus saves. Have you ever heard that? On the surface, it might even sound like that's what this passage is saying. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. But on the contrary, Father, Son, and Spirit alike announce and pronounce the condemnation that is ours. Our or condemnation, or our condemnation is ultimately against them and by them. And each in their own way helps us to see that and participates in the remedy for that. Grace Christmas is about condemnation before it is about salvation. You should write that down too. Indeed, understanding and accepting this is a prerequisite for being saved and for God-honoring Christmas celebrations. Okay, well, that begs a question, doesn't it? Which also leads to the second key to this first point. The question it begs is, condemned for what? Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation because condemnation was already universal, but what was the world condemned for? What what brought about this universal, worldwide condemnation? Romans 1 teaches that no one, remember this, you'll hear this. If you don't believe this yourself, you'll hear of someone who does. Romans 1 teaches that no one is condemned. I'm going to tell you three things that's not before I tell you the one thing that it is. Uh, What is the world condemned for? It is not for what the world doesn't know. That is, condemnation doesn't come because someone failed to keep a law they didn't know existed or because they broke a rule they'd never heard of. No one will be condemned for breaking a rule that they'd never heard. Second, no one is condemned because they fall outside of some ethnic group. That is, because they are not of the physical line of Abraham. One of the keys of the This gospel, John's gospel, is that both Jew and Gentile alike are under condemnation and can escape it by believing in the only Son of God. And here's another one. This is one that if you don't believe this or have seeds of this, you know someone who does. Contrary to what what verse 18 sounds like or might sound like, no one is condemned for not believing in Jesus. Not one person is or ever will be in hell because they've never heard of Jesus. When John wrote, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When he wrote that, his main point is that believing in Jesus is the only way out of the condemnation in which we stand. It is not that not believing in Jesus is what led to the condemnation. Well, if it's not those things, then what is it? What caused the world to fall under the condemnation of God? And what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Let me give you a handful of verses. 
I think many of them will be familiar with you. You will be familiar with many of these verses, but here's what I want to ask you to do. Just take a second, quietly, in your own mind, right now, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to hear these with fresh ears. They're verses you've probably heard. You need the Spirit's help now to hear them freshly. Here, here we go. Genesis two fifteen to 17, maybe the most familiar. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you do, you will surely die. Well, as you know, Genesis 3 follows closely on the heels of Genesis 2. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 interprets this for us, saying, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, that is, condemnation through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's back up, back to Genesis. It went from bad to worse. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I preached a whole sermon on that not that long ago. Listen to the negatives and the universals. I'm read that again. The Lord saw the wickedness of man. That's bad enough. It was great on earth. That's worse still. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not good. Psalm 53. God looks down from heaven on the children of man, you and me, all people, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead, all of you, in your trespasses and sins. James 2, 10, Forever, for whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable to all of it. And lastly, John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Anyone familiar with the Bible knows that there are dozens more passages just like these. The condemnation of the entire world comes from sin. Indeed, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and therefore stand condemned before God. Grace, rightly understood, this means at least two things. First, it means that the love of God in verse 16, for God so loved the world, that the love of God in verse 16 is not based on your loveliness or my loveliness or the loveliness of anyone in this world. Christmas is not about your worthiness to be loved. Christmas is not about your specialness. Again then, before Christmas is about anything else, it's about the condemnation that our sin has brought upon us. And second, get this, it means that genuine love, the kind that God has for us, demonstrated in, the, in awesome ways throughout all of redemptive history, and particularly at the first Christmas, does not demand that the person being loved deserves it. 
If there's something that the love of God at Christmas shows us, it's that it does not deserve that the person being loved deserves the love. This is, as John will later record Jesus' teaching, many times world-changing. Loving the unlovely, the undeserving, those who will not love you back, your enemies, is at the heart of Christmas. And therefore at the heart of celebrating it well. All right, well, the third and final key to this first principle or first point is another question. Condemned to what? If we are condemned and condemned for our sin, all of us, it's natural to ask what we're condemned to. John described, he's already described this in a few ways. He's already spoken of it as darkness, blindness, spiritual death, and just in Verse 16 is chapter 3, six, verse 16 is perishing. He will speak of it as the wrath of God in verse 36 of chapter 3, eternal torment in Revelation 20, and a second death in Revelation 28, among other things. The bottom line is that Jesus didn't come into the world to bring condemnation, but to reveal it, its source and its consequence. Grace, the whole world stands condemned on account of sin to hell. Looking around, you're unlikely to find many Christmas celebrations that have the type of weightiness. I don't mean like somberness. It's good news. It's exciting. But even the title of the book is worth buying the book for, of C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. There has to be, to celebrate Christmas in a way that truly makes sense, there's a weightiness to it. And that weightiness comes in no small measure because it is the beginning of our escape from hell. Looking around, you're not going to find many Christmas celebrations that have an appropriate weightiness stemming from an appropriate appreciation of its relationship, Christmas, to condemnation. Fewer still of the total depravity that is ours in our sin, and probably none that have an ornament that says hell on it. Get an ornament that says hell on it. I mean that. That's not actually in the manuscript, but it's important. Do that. (laughs) Get one that says so, right, from last week, and get one that says hell from this week. Because that's Christmas, right, Grace? It's just, I'm going to get ahead of myself. All right, I'm going to come back to this rant in a second. But get that, kids, Sunday school teachers, can you make, help us with this? Help have the kids, probably don't do that. All right, get back on the manuscript. If you want your Christmas celebrations to be fuller than anything this world has to offer, rooted in truth and filled with fullness of joy, if you want them to truly honor God, you must begin not with a picture of cute baby Jesus or holiday cheer or nice decorations or thoughtful presents or good food or family plans or service projects. Those are all the result of something, not the means to something. Don't start there, but start with sin and death and hell. It can't end there, or it's not Christmas. But it must begin there. Again, it doesn't get much more counterintuitive than that, does it? As you're sitting around pulling out the box of decorations and looking at Grace Church's Advent calendar, it doesn't get much more counterintuitive than that. But God isn't overly overly concerned with being intuitive to worldly wisdom. 
With the Holy Spirit's help, we will see this, be convicted and crushed by this. We will recognize the infinite offense and eternal significance of our sins against God. And we will know that we have no way out in our own strength. And then, and only then, is Christmas good news. Because when we realize these things, we'll desperately, but effectively, John promises, turn to Jesus in faith to deliver on his promises. It is only once we settle on that that the rest of John 3:17 and 18 will find its proper place. And it's only when the rest of John 3:17 and 18 finds its proper place that the rest of John, the rest of Bible, the Bible and Christmas itself will also. Grace for reasons I don't totally understand. God has long burdened me to wage a kind of war against those who have and would hijack Christmas. I invite you to join me. This is a call to arms. Let's rescue Christmas from mere sentimentality, from a marketing ploy that it's become, from dead traditionalism, from an excuse to indulge in materialism, and from a hostageless rescue, from generic holiday spirits, and from everything else that finds its roots in something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 3, 16 to 21 is among the God-given weapons for this war. With it, and the many other gospel passages like it, we're able to offer something infinitely and eternally greater than any of those things, and all of them combined have to offer. It is only once God grants us the ability to settle on all of that that we can truly appreciate what's next. And what's next, the second part of John's argument in this passage, is the good news that even though the world stands condemned for our sin to hell, Jesus was sent to rescue the world from that, from that condemnation. So just like a diseaseless cure isn't very good news, neither is a condemnationless salvation. But John helps us to see that while our condemnation was real and complete, Jesus is enough. So that leads us to the next point. The next two are really quick because we've already covered them. If Jesus did not come to bring salvation, then why did he come? Again, the text could not be any clearer. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved from our condemnation through him. As I said at the beginning, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but because the world stood condemned, he was sent then to rescue those who would trust in him. In verse 16, we saw that Jesus was given to rescue us from perishing, to put an end to our condemnation, and to give us eternal life. Those things combined, verse 17 says, are what it means to be saved. So let me say that again. Look at verse 16. It's up there. In verse 16, we see that Jesus was given to rescue us from perishing, put an end to our condemnation, and give us positively eternal life. Combined, those things are what verse 17 calls being saved. Jesus was sent that we might be saved through him. Salvation, as we try to make clear every week in our exhortations as elders, both cancels out the debt of sin that we've incurred and the condemnation that comes with it, and it fills our accounts with the righteousness of Jesus. It both puts an end to our enmity with God and restores us to perfect fellowship with him, the kind we were made for. If you want your Christmas to be supercharged with all that God offers, You must spend time looking straight at Jesus. He's revealed to us in John's gospel and 
the rest of the Bible. You must measure yourself, not against one another, or your neighbors, or your family, or your whoever. You must measure yourself against him. In so doing, you must acknowledge your staggering failure to measure up to the glory of God, the just consequences for failing to do so, your own inability to do anything about that. And then you must, as the third and final main point of the text highlights, trust wholly in Jesus to rescue you and restore you and keep you forever. So finally then, to carry on a theme that already has, you'll see this, the number of times John talks this way. Do you remember the main point of John's gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life. It comes up over and over and over and over. And so to continue on with that theme again, access to salvation and Jesus came that, that Jesus, the salvation that Jesus came to bring comes through believing in him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned any longer, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Not believing in Jesus is not what condemns us. It is what keeps us in our condemnation. And we do not escape condemnation by working really hard or being good enough or, having an, or putting enough in the offering or by homeschooling enough, or by coming to church enough, or by helping the vulnerable enough, or by believing in something of our own concoction enough. God's rescue plan, which is the only plan, is to save the world from our sin-wrought, hell-destined condemnation through believing in Jesus, the only Son of God. And in the most basic terms, that means, again, I've said this before, say it again, we say it every week in the exhortation, I hope You don't get bored of hearing this, but I hope you hear it as long as you're at Grace Church over and over and over again. The most basic terms, that means believing that Jesus is the Son of God, John says, the second person of the Trinity, that he he was sent to earth to be an example to all of us of what a life of non-condemnation looks like, that he was crucified to atone for our sins and resurrected from the dead to bring us life. And that through all of that, he reconciles us to the Father now and forever. In other words, eternal life comes to those who believe that Jesus came at Christmas to rise on Easter for all who would receive this amazing grace in faith. So here's my conclusion, brief recap. Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. He came because we already were condemned. We were condemned by God to hell for our sin. But the love of God is such that he sent his only son to provide a means of salvation. Jesus' incarnation, perfect life, suffering, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And we gain access to that by believing in him. John 3, 16, 17, and 18. Christmas grace is the beginning of that plan of God unfolding on earth. It is not wor- it, it, if that's not worth celebrating, then nothing is. May we be given eyes to see. May we be given eyes to see that, and may that shape all that we do for the glory of God and the good of the whole world.